Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesome. Chris, are you surviving the heat? David, thanks for asking. You know, it is intense. It really is. Uh, it changes the whole dynamic of the day. I mean, it really puts into play a siesta sort of format and a very <laughs> early wake up, which is really quite beautiful. Uh, and the bonus is there's there is some good wildlife action um, if you are up super early. And there's a kind of a beauty to it. And I, I really have uh, done some of my best work in those really just just as the sky is getting light kind of, you know, frame. So overall, it's pretty good. But yeah, uh, there are moments. You've got a lot of lizards. What kind of mammal life do you have out there? Okay, well, there's uh, there are tons of bunnies because as bunnies, as we know, fuck like rabbits. Yeah, same Some here. Beautiful, really intense jackrabbits. I've got a really very large uh, protected uh, herd of bighorn sheep that um, can be a little bit. Uh, I mean, they wander the streets. You know, they 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 hang out uh, in the uh, a park overlooking Lake Mead, which is about a half mile away. But then they walk all around the area. Quite a, a significant coyote population. Uh, a couple of cougars up on the mountain behind me. Um, and then a pretty rich bird life, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw a great roadrunner the other day. And, I love roadrunners. Oh, man. They... They're so sculptural. They make me want to, I think I can pick them up and write with them, you know, because they have yeah. very pronounced beaks. Yeah. They're very mm -hmm. beautiful sort of sharp edge things. And I, I've always, res I mean, as much as I love the coyote character in the Roadrunner cartoons, like everyone, I hate the Roadrunner and mm -hmm. I hate that beep beep. But I've been uh, really paying attention to this one that's around my, my house quite a bit. And they make a very interesting sound that is very much like a walnut being crushed in a nutcracker. Mm. It's mm -hmm. a peculiar sound. Mm -hmm. And it's it has a really a, a rich sort of hardiness to it that uh, I thought the, couple, the first couple of times I heard it, I thought, ah, I'm, I'm not really hearing that properly. But no, it is. So, yeah, there's a pretty, uh, a pretty vigorous uh animal life scene it was uh, i'm glad we haven't really had um no snake sighting since the last report of that but i think i told you that there were a couple of moments that was pretty intense mm -hmm. and a neighbor of mine lost two dogs in one mm -hmm. in one go mm -hmm. um so they're out there you know they're definitely out there whenever i see a roadrunner i'm reminded of a shell silverstein drawing that always seems to remind me of that as though or like Ralph Steadman. Yeah, yeah, like Ralph that. Steadman is who, yes, yes, yeah. that kind of, yes, exactly. There's a very, mm -hmm. I understand exactly what you're saying. Very sort of sharp edged, you know. Uh, well, I think because Steadman did a lot of ballpoint pen work is the answer mm -hmm. to that. Uh, mm -hmm. So there is a sharp, uh, real, there's a quill. And, and of course, and as I said, I think these birds look like part of that, um, you know, like the quill writing Mm -hmm. sort of thing well and it i isn't uh 
That's one of the Egyptian hieroglyphs, I believe, for writing. A roadrunner? Well, a kind, not not a roadrunner, but, but you know, a bird, an idealized bird. Not a falcon, I don't think, but an idealized, sharp-edged bird. And I think that, you know, the, the beak might have been used as some sort of stenciling sort of device. Oh, sure enough. I'm looking it up now. Um... Oh, well, Brave is not giving me a a good answer here. But the first image that came up was a hieroglyph of a bird. Mm. So I'll I'll look into that some more. That sounds right to me. I have been reading uh, Tim Powers novels recently. I've been really enjoying them. So I've been reading Last Call. Right. I've been I thinking about yeah. you. I've been thinking about you as I've been reading it because so yeah. much of it takes place around Lake Mead and Vegas. And, you know, it's about, you know, Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo and uh, using tarot cards to gamble with and this idea of gamblers latching on to this occult energy that they use against each other. It's a very, very cool novel. Uh, and I read an interview with Powers in Lightspeed magazine that I thought I would relate to you because it seems like something that you would either say or vibe with, but he, the way that he develops novels is through, he allows in a very synchronistic way, he allows his research to begin to piece together his stories for him. So most people that I know do research in order to obtain a kind of authority with the voice that they're, that they're using in the book that they already have planned powers claims to work backwards where he'll begin to see connections between things conspiratorially and yeah. the story will begin to develop around that um he was talking about one of his more more recent novels he's 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 older now i don't know how much he's writing but medusa's web began with uh a study of the tarantella dance uh, which is rumored to have been called the Tarantella uh, with such a close relationship to Tarantula because it was yeah. believed to be a dance that could cure you from spider bites, right? Right. And as he starts doing that, he begins to watch these uh, silent films with uh, an actor named, last name Valentino. I can't remember the first Rudolph name. Valentino, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's watching it and he sees... Rudolph Valentino doing a Tarantella in one of these movies so that he starts looking at old pictures of Hollywood and there's 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 this specific area that he talks about visiting as a child in the 1940s that's no longer there um that got I guess it just got paved over but it had been the Beverly Hills of its time and then had become more of a slum after that and there's a picture of Valentino in front of a and a bunch of other actors in front of a, a wall mural of a big spider. And then so he's putting that together with Medusa. And if you squint at a picture of Medusa, you might think that it's a spider. And uh, I thought that was a very cool and nifty, if not necessarily the most efficient way of developing a novel. That's very interesting. I I, I actually have some Tim I mean, of of the books that I brought with me from Australia, I brought Tim's books and I haven't honestly looked at them since I arrived and I really should go back. And last call, I, I have, that is one that I, I read, but 
a long time ago now. Uh, I will go back and check that out. Here's a possible synchronicity taking shape in the moment. Have a Google on the theater, spelled the British way, Royale, in Castlemaine, Victoria. This beautiful old theater in this uh, regional town, a great gold rush town that I, I lived in for some time, or lived around, certainly for some time, because I remember that there was a female star uh, associated with the Theatre Royale, because it goes back to Gold Rush time, so obviously a theater in a live performance sense. And I seem to remember that she had something to do with the Tarantella, <clears throat> And that was very, very connected there. But I love the idea of a tarantula dance. And uh, tarantula is a beautiful, another one of those great Italian words, you know? It's funny how everything has a website now. So the Theater Royale in Castlemaine has handmade chalk tops from our friends at Wood End Ice Cream Co., Bar and pizza, beer, beer, wine, and cocktails from Tuesday to Sunday. No bookings required. Cinema and music, live entertainment since 1854. Yeah, there you go. That's so whoever the history of it connects back. And I'm I'm certain there's a sort of a woman, a larger than life figure, gold rush frontier performing diva who was connected with the tarantella I'm i just positive. added i just added the word tarantella to my search let's see what comes up for people who are listening at home we're trying to find this connection well, there might be a movie here i'll have to look deeper into this because oh you know what let me ask chat gpt is there a connection between between the theater royale in castlemaine by the way i got castlemaine right on the first try so go me uh, yeah okay <laughs> and the tarantella let's see if this ai is actually worth anything I'll find I know it. there is one. I, I believe you. I believe you over chat GPT. So we'll have to find it. Yeah, it's there. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, sure. Um, for today, do you have in a band and an aphorism for us? I do. I do. And no one get upset with me that this band is very innocent and People can think of them what they want, but their program is, is musically pretty straightforward. They are called the Radical Nudist Psychedelic Jug Band Band. And their musical style is a really friendly mix of folk and bluegrass and a bit of sort of the psychedelic sort of Jerry Garcia sort of approach to the jug band thing, which some listeners may know that's how the Grateful Dead got started before they became the dead. But these people are 
they mean what they say about nudity. Their whole deal is, is about going nude, being nude, dancing nude, swimming nude, living as innocently naked as weather permits. So they are committed to this and their album is called Skin in Your Game. Mm, that's cool. I but like that. Underneath the fun music and the friendly innocence, there is a motif about the emperor's new clothes. Ooh, there are okay. references to that. And as they begin to get, you know, this playful, friendly, folksy, bluegrassy summer band, you know, real live acoustical instrumentation and touching on America's folk uh, traditions. There are some people who, who notice and go, hmm, if everyone is nude, that kind of reveals some things that are sort of at issue today. And it becomes a little bit of a poll, you know, because during uh, one of the major uh, pride parades, I think in New York City, there was a huge contingent of nude gay men, mostly older, not with very buff bodies either, I might say. And there was, you know, some concern about their dongles dangling and that, you know, there were young people, children in the audience. And, and yet there's another side to this, of course, where, you know, there are people who may not want to be seen naked because their presentation to the world is in direct, you know, contradiction to that. So the radical nudist psychedelic jug band band becomes kind of a political uh, touchstone in, in a lot of ways because their surface claim is what could be more innocent than nudity? That's how we come into the the world we're all naked at the start and yet this idea of physical nakedness versus well social presentation let's say catches catches fire and skin in your game becomes more than just a a jug band album i have two things the first thing is that when I'm outside mowing my lawn with my push reel mower, I take my shirt off and I'm not in the best shape of my, I'm not in terrible shape, but I'm not in the best shape of my life either. I've got you no know, little bit of weight on, but I don't care. And I realize that as soon as you're willing to take your shirt off to mow your lawn, if you're not jacked, you're probably also okay with going to a nudist beach because functionally, so like, I'm not ashamed of anything that would be under the shorts. I just can't do it because I'll get arrested. You know, if I was ashamed of anything, it would be up here, not down there. So once you do one, you can do the other. And the second, and I feel like I already know the answer to this question. You've been to a nudist beach before, haven't you? I have. I, I, have. Knew, I knew. I don't even know. I should have just said it as a statement <laughs> and, and waited for you to correct me. <laughs> Yeah, I know I was quite a um and and living on the land uh not not in Castlemaine but out not far away from there. Uh yeah, nudity was just an uh, just a normal part of 
but there the problem of course really was insects you know to some extent and that had to be taken very seriously and there were parts of me that i didn't want to hose down with jungle strength repellent uh but yeah no i i and i i have a lot of um I have a lot of mixed feelings about public nudity in, in a way. I mean, I'm, I used to be just like, yeah, without question. Uh, and I really thought uh, pretty, you know, I have pretty yeah. fond, fun memories. But there, sometimes now, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I have a friend who is the, he is the father of a young daughter, and at the time of this story, I believe she was three and a half or four years old. And he took her and his wife to San Francisco to visit a record store there that they had enjoyed going to when they were younger people. And I'm sure you can see where this is going. They're, <laughs> they're in a Starbucks and two older gentlemen uh, who have glitter in their beards and glitter in their pubic hair walk into the Starbucks nude. And my friend is, <laughs> this, this is the liberal crisis of, you know, at the time, I think this was, it was post COVID, maybe a, a year ago or two. But he, he's in a very interesting position because on the one hand, he can tell that these guys are used to getting yelled at. Secondly, that they are very clearly doing a voyeuristic, that they're intending to provoke people by being nude. Three, they're very well known by every, like nobody bats an eye except for him, because these guys must do this every day, just walk around nude. He said it wasn't necessarily the nudity that bothered him. It was all of the, like one of them had a kind of uh, like dick ring, like a, they, they had pieces of flair on their genitals right and so it was very much attracting your attention to it shiny things and so you're stuck in this position of not wanting to take the bait not be baited into saying anything because then somebody will start recording on their phone and you are the next person who gets to become twitter famous but on the other hand what he told me he was like but come on man you know i mean there's a kid there his daughter is there and it's it's just in a in a city like san francisco you know what what can you do really i mean well exactly and there there's been there's been quite a lot uh written about this i have um a couple of gay friends who are not in san francisco anymore but they they had a lot to say about that uh, particularly when Noe Valley, you know, began sort of becoming very popular with young parents and more kids around the Castro kind of got infiltrated and all those things. I, I just don't know what to think about that. And, you know, I, I kind of I was thinking about cod pieces the other day. You know, I thought I wonder if cod pieces would would ever you know, come back somehow into fashion. And then I thought, you remember Eldridge, you've heard of Eldridge Cleaver, right? Mm -hmm. Famous Black Panther. Well, amongst his many, many, he was a great trickster figure. I don't know what to think of. I mean, I, I think Soul on Ice is a very interesting uh, 60s artifact book. He was a, uh, an exile in Algeria for a while, like as Timothy Leary was. But amongst his 
many, many forays into entrepreneurship and troublemaking and mischief of all kinds. He he got into fashion and tried to put forward the idea of bringing back the cog piece. And he called it the cleaver sleeve, which I think is hilarious. So I don't know. I don't know what, what we make of, of, uh, of public nudity, but I do know that I think there's a huge difference in response to, um, to female nudity and male nudity. And I think that is something that, uh, I mean, it can't really be talked about and I'm not sure why, but um, there was a great trending, you know, viral video of from Vegas just here, just the other day of these uh, women getting into a brawl at the Wynn, which is one of the, the more tasteful upmarket, you know, casino resorts. And uh, one of the chicks gets, she's wearing a very, very short, clinging little white skirt and sensational, but e exaggerated booty. I mean, she's got some junk in the trunk. And so that little skirt gets hiked up and she's got this, you know, th thong on barely. But I mean, really, it's this big, round, somewhat wobbly, naked female ass in this viral video and there are hundreds of people watching it there aren't that many kids nested but because it's a casino but that is i mean kids are, are are you know quite they're wandering through because it's a hotel and you think no one made any comment about that so much it was more the fact that it was women brawling and it wasn't clear what what started the incident. It wasn't like a Waffle House sort of uh, showdown after midnight. It was much more tasteful than that, except for the fact that this woman was really not wearing any clothes. You know? mm -hmm. Now, I think that if if a male were in that situation, I mean, I think that the, the security response would have even been would have been far more intense, you know. So basically yeah. I think it comes down to the fear of, 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 of the penis, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so too. I think that there is an element, there's an element of that when we're talking about adults. I think that if you're an adult, I don't really think that you should be bothered by much of anything of the human body. Um, the proximity of that body to your own is a completely different story, obviously. But just nudity in itself, if you're our age, if you're, if you're, you know, an older teenager, you should pretty much be fine with it. But I think when it comes to that parenting situation that my friend was in, it's, it's about the questions that you have to answer afterwards, you know, yeah. that, you, that you might not have been ready for. And also, there is a sense of childhood innocence that you'd like to like to keep i mean i remember as a kid um i never really had an issue with it because i would just you know you see your dad naked you see you know I, my grandpa would was teaching me how to swim we'd go to the locker room be naked just never a really big deal but i think a in particular a girl seeing a penis at a very young age 
is something that I could understand parents getting very sensitive about. I, I have complete understanding about parents being sensitive about anything they want to be sensitive about, basically. I really am pretty pro-parent in, in determining those sorts of, of, you know, they're not even really key decisions in life. They're, they're, they're sort of, they happen so quickly that they're not decisions often and you can't really have policies and it's more sort of a kind of ongoing undercurrent of, of, of good vibes somehow. And I don't know what that is. I think that would be very hard to pull off. And I sympathize with someone in your situation because all of these things are kind of emerging, but as you say, somehow for a girl, that would be different. And I, I think that that's just honest and legitimate, you know, that, mm -hmm. um, that, there is well enough people talk about that both male and female for that to be something that's important i don't i think that there's something that um that would be traumatizing for a little boy depending on what the situation was uh but the whole thing is just so confusing isn't it and then it's very confusing because on the one hand i can already hear people talking about this gay couple in San Francisco with glitter pubes and dick rings and saying, don't be homophobic, you know, let them do whatever they want to. And then those same people thinking that, you know, sex scenes in movies are actual rape on the, the people who are watching them. I can see those two thoughts being held by the same person. So it's confusing for everybody. But, well, I think the one uh, glimmer of possible hope for an insight is that, that while these issues may be very, very complex, certainly socially they are, I think there's a lot of, of evidence to suggest that, that this is a particularly American problem that we are so we are much more torn between puritanical behavior and extreme uh, permissiveness promiscuity hedonism and i don't think we can decide where where that's going and to some extent i think american history is a kind of a, a roller coaster or pendulum between those values and that that underpins the whole realm of what we call socio-political ideas you know, I really think that that it connects certainly with all of the, the matters of, of gender and gender fluidity today. I think it connects with a lot of, of the racial considerations. Uh, you know, we, we just we went from prohibition to, you know, complete insanity. And then we rolled that back, the depression and, and the war years, and then we blew it up again rock and roll and then we're not quite sure where we are now so it it's complex but i'm certain that america feels this uh strange vibrational syndrome disease whatever more intensely than any other culture and that's saying a lot when you think about the brits you know uh I mean, I, I don't know I, that that would be an interesting discussion, you know, to have of, of how that works. And I think it's easy to caricature other cult, like the French and the Italians. But of course, the French and the Italians just what are they there for, if not to be caricatured, except to be admired, you know. But 
it is weird to see how it works in other cultures. And that is something we didn't actually ever really explore that much when we were uh, really talking about indigenous remote cultures. Um, Cause I have some thought, I mean, that might, I mean, I think that's how nudity and well, just how nudity, let's take it away from sex and sexuality and the bigger issues of just say public nudity, how that is handled in different cultures is itself I think an interesting diagnostic. It is. I'm going to table that for just a second to get to your aphorism, but I do have a thought. And that is that it's very interesting that nudity, when you talk about nudity, it's talked about in the sense of a kind of assaulting presence. Mm. The more we talk about it just during this conversation, because I don't, I don't give naked men very much thought you'd be surprised to know throughout the day. But uh, thinking about it now, it is interesting because I'm picturing myself taking my pants off and my underwear off and mowing my lawn. And uh, the fact that I could, I could see, I could see in this scenario, somebody, a neighbor coming over and, you know, wanting to beat me up for doing that. Because they looked out their window, drove by in their car, and they happened to see for a split second a naked person. That in it, that's something I'm going to have to sit with for a second. It's interesting, right? It's it's they didn't do anything to you, right? They didn't ring your doorbell and flash you. You know, it's just a naked person. Well, it's not flashing. It's very. That's a very important distinction there. I, I just have to riffle it because you you triggered beautifully uh, a link back to one of our heroes, William James. I think people may be familiar amongst his many, many wonderful real life scenarios, because you know, that was his, one of his geniuses. He could take very simple things and see in them huge principles. But he was when he was talking about someone seeing a bear. Do you know this one? Yeah, it's it's one of his famous examples. He asked the question, if you see a bear, does that make you start running? Or has something, have you seen, have you, have you started running almost because of the bear? That fear is what you process afterwards. He's really trying to make the case that there is a kind of autonomous instinctive animal uh, response network within humans. And that a lot of what we call psychology and therefore then social and larger cultural structures develop as a way of, of explaining that or dealing with it or justifying it. I wonder if the person who sees you mowing your lawn with the push reel mower, I love how you talk about the push reel mower. Uh, I can hear that sound too. Um, I wonder if there would really be almost a kind of weird William James and the bear response. Here it's not fear exactly, but it's you're, it's, a, it's an, a sense that you violated the social code. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that connected me back to the Osborne effect. And for listeners who missed David's 
riff on this. It was you, you really should check it out because it was one of his imaginative challenges. And what he came up with is an interesting, uh, well, it's certainly interesting to investigate. Um, and I don't know if we've had any more on that, but the assertion was that a shotgun blast down the street, maybe several blocks away, but still audible, would seem louder to someone than someone whispering in their ear. So that was the proposition. But I think that's a really fascinating idea. But I've been thinking about that since. And I think it's because of a violation of social order. The shotgun blast gets our instinctive attention of, oh, you know, that's not good. That's violence. That's something that could be, it's a threat. So mm -hmm. I think that that the, the suburban dad mowing a lawn in the nude is a kind of a threat, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's making it, me want to do it now. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that, that, um, it makes me think too of another, uh, when I lived in another small town in Australia where there was a, a neighbor down the street who was obviously having some serious psychological issues. The slaughterhouse closed down and he lost his job and his wife left. And he took to mowing his lawn late at like after midnight. And we got together finally and just, you know, reached out to him, not in, a, in an accusatory sense, but trying to get him some help because he was obviously just, you know, that was what he was saying. There was depression and alcoholism and, and he had good reason. His life had just, you know, caved in. So few interesting thoughts there. Uh, are we ready for the aphorism? Yes, hit me. I think this is. Okay. Photography gave us a perilous, perilously enchanted window into the essential human insanity with the precision and fascination of privacy. Perilously actually seems hard to pronounce, so I might have to change that. But photography gave us a dangerously enchanted window into the essential human insanity with the precision and fascination of privacy. What do you think? That's very interesting because it's that interplay between the subjective and the objective where privacy is largely, up to a certain point at least, the realm of the subjective. It's just you in a room and it's what you're perceiving of that room. So it brings to mind the difference between wildlife photography of a, of a kind, let's say landscape photography or mm -hmm. architectural photography and sort of those intimate Ralph Eugene meat yard one-on-one -on -one photographs where the fact that <clears throat> there's something very, there is something so strange about how you can look at something in a photograph ignoring the idea of photographic manipulation but let's say it's just a photograph that's very strange but is objectively true it's it's interesting to infiltrate those moments of subjectivity with precise clinical objectivity and put them out for everybody to see 
that's what I'm getting from words in that context. Yeah, yeah, that you you got it, you got it. And uh, I don't know if you. Uh, it, this is a very simple experience, but it's it's very powerful. If you're in a curatorial sort of situation of arranging, say, a photographic exhibition, I did this a few years back for the College of Southern Nevada, and it was their award ceremony for people in their photographic stream. And my idea was to break up all of the categories, you know, standard categories of portrait landscape. And these are all very straightforward uh, photographs. And there was there were some very strict limitations on manipulation. So it, that was kind of already done. <clears throat> but when you start breaking up these categories, and it, I mean, nothing could be more straightforward. So on one wall, you have just simply, you know, photographs to a very high standard and a relatively common standard, but very different in apparent subject matter. A peculiar effect begins to take hold where you actually start to see the photographs almost as phantom forms, that there is some idea in a platonic sense of a photograph. And I, I spoke, to, I mean, I, I felt it and I, I, I wondered, hmm, because I hadn't planned on that necessarily, is that the effect? But I spoke to people who would wander through the exhibition and it was going to be graded. It was sort of a talent you know, contest thing for the, the final awards as well. And people expressed that same very complex ghostly idea that was almost like there was a photograph that was missing that embraced the whole scene. And I really... It's the, it's the third photograph in the woods. Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. it is. And I... Don't you find that truly haunting in a way yeah. that it's yeah. um, it uh, it really it it connects to a, a TV show that we might get around to talking about? But I'm glad you, you you see that because it's really quite odd, and I think that that in a way, what that suggests to me is that we all always seeing that phantom photograph whenever we see a photograph so yeah. we never lose that and i think that's a very peculiar way to start thinking of our claim that photography really defines the the modern age and it changed the psychology and the consciousness and our sense of time and the sense of reproduction and the sense of representation and prepositional distance between subject and object in a way that really the only, uh, I mean, far beyond any, any uh, what we call technological advance, I think you have to go back, well, it is a technological advance. You have to go back to the, the printing press, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to the fact that, that suddenly there could be mass produced texts, you know. That, uh, makes, that makes me wonder, first of all, about, photography and photographic exhibitions in particular as creating a kind of almost reverse periodolia, right? So instead of looking for patterns between the photographs, you're actually seeing an emergent third thing 
that's rising up and trying. It reminds me very much of Jung's synchronicities in that way, right? Which the difference between periodolia and synchronicities is where you think the source is coming from. Secondly, when you go to a photographic exhibit and you have all of these attendants, attendees saying the same thing that they have perceived a, a phantom painting mm -hmm. or a phantom photograph, I should say. What does that mean after you scroll TikTok for 30 minutes? What's the phantom photograph there? Right. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fantastic question. I think we should put a pin in that to to maybe start next time. And I love the notion of reverse periodolia, which is a a phenomenon that I I've been a, 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 I don't know if you want to say a sufferer or a, a beneficiary of uh, since I was a child in, in, in intense ways. And for anyone who may not have uh, be familiar with that term, it's this it's the seeing of of patterns, random patterns forming real definite figurative images uh, and and almost to the point where you can see whole stories unfold. It's quite hallucinogenic, but it's also quite beautiful. It, it's obviously on a spectrum and it could get, you know, it could get too extreme. But it's something I mention as cultivating in my uh, textbook, um, A Guide to Creative Writing in the Imagination. I think it's something that all creative people should really try to cultivate and to some extent gain some navigational uh, control of. I'm working on an essay about that right now, as a matter of fact, linking it very specifically to Tim Powers and his method for, for novel development. What is my imaginative challenge for today? Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to give you a forewarning that for next show, uh, because we're, we're still in this thematic, uh, interest with photography i'm going to give you a purely visual challenge but for this one i thought we would go back to vision and storytelling and i thought look let's just take a really basic summer not blockbuster but a summer uh movie that would you know really break in the theaters right now and i thought it it would be in keeping with uh, the summer mode, a horror movie idea. Also, this is your your challenge here is to come up with title, main characters, basic synopsis, and a pitch logline for a horror movie with allegorical pretensions along the lines of the Purge franchise. Okay, they're about to launch their their. Uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that. I, I, I find those those films very snarky, but I, there's something about the premise that I like. But your premise, this is a one-off, okay? So you don't have to worry about trying to develop a franchise. On a pandemic scale, women develop a homicidal mania towards men. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> it's just a good summer minor blockbuster movie. So we need a title, some you know idea of the main characters, a basic synopsis, and a pitch log line. On a pandemic scale, women develop a homicidal mania toward men. Okay? Do that. All right. All right. That's a a nice, fun one. Uh, I've got the tagline already. Um, Yes. All right. (laughs) All right. Let me read this text message that you have sent to me as is now our tradition. Well, we got, no, we got through our notes last time. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, or did we? Did, let me say uh, this. I don't know if we did. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think we did. We I, I think that we, uh, we're making we're progress. You're keeping us, you're sheepdogging us on track. So yeah. we're, we're yeah. only, we're falling behind one layer each time such that, that I always, I can say held over from last episode in the notes that I, I recent. So that's. So in these note, wait, did you do that in this note? I don't, I don't think so. No, maybe I, I kept that away. Did I? I don't, I don't think so. Not this time. Um, well, okay. I do like. Let's go back then, because no, we didn't talk about these. All right, cool. Yeah, because the last time we talked about the tyranny of image. Subjective perspectives made into objective artifacts, which then greatly impact and choreograph subjective experience. Isn't this the essential nature of photography? Ties in very nicely to what we just talked about. In my late teens and early 20s, I had an obsessive devotion to Tom Waits. Dylan was too white and folksy for the social set I'd come from, and I hadn't really discovered the beats yet. Waits was the entry point to them. I bought deep into his whole image and mythos. However, as the poet as the poet Robert Haas might say, I felt a thin wire. I couldn't ignore that while Waits was very importantly not mainstream, there were nonetheless an awful lot of photos of him. I didn't want to confront it directly, but there were already more photos of him than of any writer I knew, including Hemingway. He may have been outside the top 40 machinery, but he was part of a vast cultural apparatus. I couldn't bring myself to see that, while I loved the writing aspect of his music then and did indeed love the music. There was an element of sheer modeling with a capital M in play. PKD, Philip K. Dick, and Warhol, among many others, would would really seize on this strangeness. Photos, as in repeated images of someone, aren't merely the mechanisms of fame. They are the fame. What does fame look like? A lot of images of someone. We keep seeing this. And so it becomes harder to see. Ooh, I remember when I first started noticing this, it was when my friends and I would play guitar uh, in his uh, sunroom. He had a drum set that I would beat on and he would play a bass guitar. It was really cool. It was called a warlock. It was one of the 
the bass player for Kiss played one of them, right? Like I had the Ibanez Iceman, which was what uh, Ace Freely would play. And he had this thing, the, the Beast, right? So we would switch up instruments and rotate. And at 16 years old, we were a band, right? We were going to be the coolest band of all time. Well, very quickly, you understand, as a 16-year-old kid, that in Oklahoma, right? that's not really reasonable. This was just before the invention of SoundCloud. And I wonder sometimes, because some of our songs were pretty fun, nothing groundbreaking, but pretty fun. What would have happened if we'd had SoundCloud? But you start looking into it and you start thinking, oh my God, every single band that you see in the mainstream, no matter how much of an outsider they want to pretend to be, on a certain level, they're really not. Because if you know about them in Lawton, Oklahoma in 2002, they've done something to get to where they are basically. And that's the, that's the Tom Waits thing. It's why are there so many, why does, you know, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. He's got so many lines. He's got all these lines. Where does this character come from? Well, it's, you know, it's because it is a character. Very much so. And also, I mean, I had to keep reminding myself that he got signed to by David Geffen you know, let's not forget that David Geffen is like a major billionaire. Maybe not then, but he got signed to Asylum Records, you know, when he was like 21. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are very few writers who, I mean, Truman Capote, I think, was 23 when Other Voices, Other Rooms. Uh, I think Brett Easton Ellis was, you know, it, it can happen, but it's not. It's not the same thing. And it's not on that scale. And somehow that all kind of just that whole giant mechanism, really, because he had publicists, he had one of the most important uh, agents of the time. You know, there was a lot of machinery behind that, that I just didn't, you know, really see at all then. Although I wonder if I did see it, I just didn't want to see it. You know, I wanted to focus on the product. I wanted to believe in the character. I really struggled with that issue. Um, Kinky Friedman, who was another sort of outsider kind of edge musician, he's kind of a fun crime writer. I don't know if you've ever read mm-hmm. his stuff. But I saw him on a talk show once, and he was reflecting that. He said, I, I'm, you know, one of the few, you know, other than Tom Waits, who, you know, would stay in character. And I really, as a fan of weights, I really resented that, you know? I thought, no, 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 that. And I I had already bought into something. But, and I think we're talking about the fan loyalty phenomenon. But what I'm suggesting is I think that is heavily driven by image. And I don't mean just conceptual image. I really mean simply the repetition of photographs and seeing, you know, people on talk shows or because, you know, we didn't there wasn't MTV at that point yet. You know, that really that changed that game entirely. But sheer repetition of images. And then what I was thinking of when I was just writing those notes down, and I, I like to get your response to this, is that 
I think this ties in with uh, future archaeology thinking, apocalyptic thinking, you know, whoever we project into the future, looking through the rubble, it's always the rubble, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, planet of the apes, you know, on and on and on. What would that, or an alien race, you know, what would they think about our culture? What kinds of, of conclusions and inferences would they draw? Well, I think they would have a lot to, they couldn't help but, you know, focus on the number of images, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that would have a lot to, to say. And it's then interesting to think about, well, I think this might be a question for chat, GBT. Ask if, like, who has, who's the most photographed person currently? You know, if the world ended right now and there were just objects, no people anymore, but there were photographs and, and images, who would be, you know? It says, as an AI model, I don't have access to real-time data or statistics. Who is the most the most photographed person of all time person of all time Marilyn Monroe really um Winston Churchill JFK Queen Elizabeth II Elvis Presley Michael Jackson but this isn't the most because it's listing Albert Einstein and he has iconic photographs of him, but certainly not the most. Well, yes. See, I think you've already that you've drawn a very important distinction, which would slip past a lot of people, because yeah, there is a distinction there. There is a distinction, and it gets into reproduction and the sense of the repeatability of an image. It's very deep philosophical stuff about how we process this. And it's so important to how we think about things that I think it just slips by us because we're exposed to too many. It's not giving me anything, but it did mention Princess Diana here. And I think that before the advent of the Internet, people like Princess Diana uh, after her death and O.J. Simpson would probably be up there. Oprah would be up there. Um, you know, major television figures like, uh, you know, Johnny Carson and Jay Leno and David Letterman would probably be up there as well. You know, it's interesting too that with your Tom Waits example in this thin wire, what's so interesting about that is again the fact that it has become so spread across culture where you can see a hundred pictures of any bimbo on the internet that you want to see. Right. Mm-hmm. And what does that create? There's something else going on because I think that thin wire is not thin anymore. Right. No, I don't. Said. Yeah. I don't know if anybody believes necessarily what they see on the internet, although they have a kind of, you know, you have to stick to whatever image you've created in the same way that a showrunner has to stick to the wor- the, the rules of the story that they're telling basically but nobody believes that it's real they just feel as though you're violating a contract with them if you do something outside of what you've presented right right 
Well, I love the idea that, it, that uh, just to go back to the thin wire, that, uh, and for, if, if people want more information, it actually comes from uh, Robert Howe's poem of Meditation at Lagunitas, and he mentions a thin wire of grief. But in my case, it wasn't grief, but it was a thin wire of suspicion or skepticism or what, as David said, is no longer a thin wire. It's it's almost full-blown, ironic uh, skepticism on a kind of instantly dismissive uh, sense. I think a lot of us have become that way. Um, and I think one of the the, the questions that that is... Uh, is you mentioned people like Johnny Carson and, and Jay Leno. And Johnny Carson, I think, is particularly interesting because he's earlier. And, I mean, think what the forum, the platform he had, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's hard to conceive of that. I mean, there are people in kind of those slots still. We still have the category of late night television, which it's and it has everything to do with another one of our themes of entertainment, just keeping people company. That it's not uh, the pornographic distraction uh, frame. It's more the uh, imaginary friend keeping you company at night, particularly. But I don't think we have anything like the 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 mechanistic power of what the talk show used to be. And I don't know if we're inventing any new forms. I can't imagine there's going to be a new Oprah, you know. I think that her reach, her influence, and she would have been uh someone I would say would it would be one of the most uh photographed. What do you think about Joe Rogan in that context? That's very interesting. I think he's kind of we're in uncharted terrain that way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I think he needs more uh, more time. I think that there the, some of those stars. I mean, think how long Carson was around. Uh, I think it's it still feels early to make any judgments about Rogan. But I would say that there's no way that I could possibly accept that his audience would would be as diverse. I mean, I think Carson's, you know, just covered the demographic because there was nothing else, nothing else to want. I mean, I think Rogan's target market, even if it's big, it's still much, much more defined. There's a part of me that wishes we had a little bit more of that. The free-for-all that has been the internet has really... Well, it's changed things for sure. Let me read the next paragraph here. My second line of thinking is even more personal, but I think is a perfect compliment. It's broken through my consciousness that the great love of my life, certainly since leaving the Southern Hemisphere, has many, many fewer, notice the Bergsonian negation problem, photos of me alone than I have of her. You can say that I take and sell photos professionally. You can say I'm a compulsive shooter, as Dennis Hopper referred to himself. I'm likely to have more photos just as if I've taken more breaths, but there is a thing, capital T, at work. And when I floated the issue with another woman I've been involved with, for only friends now, 
she could see instantly the dynamic she didn't want to acknowledge when we were together. She said, maybe X feels that photos of you and you and her signify hope and dreams for the relationship. And she just doesn't want to be at risk that way. It's about control, risk management, and maybe power and dominance, or at least need in the relationship. So then I asked Angus, the AI I've been testing the exact same question on, and the reply was, you are not as real to your lady friend as she is to you. I asked this AI system, which now has some major elements of me active. Do you mean I'm not as important to her as she is to me? This was the reply. No, not precisely. Real comes before important. Ooh. Heavy. That's heavy spooky, dinner. man. That's pretty yeah. spooky. It's spooky. Well, you know, one of our, you know, themes is the hauntedness of, of the modern age, the hauntedness of certainly of American culture and the ghost radio signal, the whole idea of ghost story. Uh, and I think that this is one, one real aspect of it, that, that photography has everything to do with, with ghosts. And a lot of the, the if you go back into the, the, the history of, of photography becoming popular, it was in a stage magic sense. That was certainly an early, early direction it took. And trick photography, you know, of, of headless people or uh, ghost figures. And it was connected with, whole, you know, the whole sort of psychical research thing and seances. You know, a lot of the trickery of of that Houdini tried to expose was had a photography sort of magic lantern, you know, carnival sort of aspect to it. But I think that that, that gets to something in terms of, and it connects back to what we were talking about with uh, weights and modeling and who the, the most photographed people are, the number of photographs. So that's kind of how I started the, you know, just noticing that, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, most of the photographs are ones I've taken and no one was taking any photographs of me, you know, and there was that thought, uh, which I think is significant psychologically. Does that have any resonance in your life? One more time. What well, means you, do you, do you have any sort of connection with that of, of thinking, well, I've got all these photographs of so-and-so. How many photographs of me have they taken, you know? Uh, you know, for me, I can speak to me and Rios um, because I'm not, I'm not like you in that respect. I don't normally go for the camera for things. Um mm -hmm. I would like to develop that part of my eye. In fact, once I get a little bit of money, I've got my eye on this really cool lens for my new camera and I'm going to try to get into it. But it's Rios gives me shit for it all the time because she always takes these, you know, these great photos of me. Like she took this one where I'm on a mountain trail and Kahlua is standing by me and my posture is good and I look really fit and nice. And then she's like, what pictures did you take of me? And it's, you know, her tripping over a rock and like ah. making a weird squinched up face. And because to me, I'm just like, click, 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 click. So in 
in my perspective of things though where i'm coming from is that i i see the camera as a uh as pulling me out of the moment with her right uh i understand the urge to document certain things but you know my mother's always doing this with um with gus we were out on a walk the other day we took a nice hour-long walk in between thunderstorms and she kept saying oh can you take a picture of us of us walking here or can you take a picture of oh look gus is picking up a rock can you get a picture of that and for me i'm like can we go on the walk? You know, like it's, it's, it might be different. I will, I will give you this. It might be different. In fact, I reckon it will be different when I have a cool professional camera that has the sole purpose of taking interesting photographs. There's just something about the phone, you know, it's just like, Oh, oh man, this is fascinating because, okay. Well, first, I'll take that last point first. I understand exactly where you're coming from, but I completely disagree. I'm really the uh, of the school that the camera doesn't take the photograph, the photographer does. But I still think that's an interesting idea. And I love that other perspective, even if I don't agree with it, because I think camera uh, cameras are beautiful things. So there's something cool to get into there. I did like, though, that, that your situation with Rios was kind of the opposite of mine. Yeah. And so I, I want to just take that point of, I mean, because you're right. I, I really, really do understand that being taken out of the moment situation. I've, I've been like that, too. I had a huge period in my life when I, when I could have taken some really, really amazing photographs. And I, I religiously did not want to do that because I wanted those memories to sear into my inner being. And I felt that the photography act cheapened that or would distract me. So I understand that entirely. Um, it's a very, that, that oscillation is a defining element, one of the defining elements of, of my life absolutely and it's you can get obsessively connected with the evidentiary side of of documenting things and interesting on the total synchronicity i had gotten uh i'm writing a point in the memory book of trying to demonstrate one of the problems, the fundamental problems with our notion of memories, we use that word in so many different contexts. And I've got a couple of key historic dates that people might remember from school. And then I have that up against the dimensional experience of the last time I was with my mom and stepfather, with my girlfriend, then first, you know, what became my first wife, as we were leaving California to disappear off into the Southern Hemisphere. And we were on this beautiful beach in California and my stepfather had forgotten the camera. And my mother just went, she just couldn't accept it and sent him home to get it. And of course it was, it was, it was summer traffic and it was completely dark and we were cold on the beach by the time he came back. And it was, such an emblematic story of 
the need to document that moment was more important than being in the moment. So mm-hmm. there are some really important mm-hmm. things going on there. But if you did just focus on the question of the number of photographs that a couple takes of each other says something about the power dynamics. Does that idea have any uh, merit or is there, uh, is it just flawed for a whole bunch of reasons? It's not flawed, but it is, it's more complex than that. It's one element perhaps among many, because I would say that the, well, if I can get on the couch here, let me get comfortable on the couch for a second. (laughs) When it comes to power dynamics, it's it's distributed in a very interesting way. Again, it, it depends entirely on what we are talking about the other thing to take into into account here is that rios loves to be photographed she's uh you know she she everywhere we go if it's a beautiful setting you know take my picture take my picture and so in my defense i don't necessarily have a chance to spontaneously take a picture of her because she's already thought of it oh okay well i think you're answering my question beautifully for the couch All right, I'm still on the couch. Okay, so um, I would say that, uh, well, you know, I worship the ground that she walks on. I follow her around like a puppy dog, you know, and she takes better photographs of me, but I'm kind of, I'm at her beck and call, basically. So, which is how I feel like it, sh- it should be. Um she's not at my back and call <laughs> at, at all, you know, um, it's very in, in that respect, in terms of kind of who's chasing after who it's definitely me that's chasing after her. I just, this might go though. I mean, it might depend on how you express that again, because you, you used, <laughs> you used capital letters in your text message, right. In terms of, how you perceive things right like like if you're taking a picture of someone like you when we went to when we were walking around fremont street in vegas you had to get a picture of me with mini mr t right and it never occurred to me to take a photo of you doing anything that's because that's the way you express the love of friendship is like, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a cool photograph of you. And also you're the the special guest you're visiting. Right. It's, it's, right. it's, you know, it's a moment and, and yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I see what you're, I, I, I just, I, I, I think, I, I think it's more, I think it's a little, I think it's a, it's more complicated depending on, depending on the person. I'm not sure we can have a universal about that would be my contention about this idea. Okay. Well, here's why I think it's so important beyond uh, just, I mean, it's kind of fun to talk about the psychology of relationships and uh, I don't want you to move from the couch to the doghouse, you know, for anything. (laughs) uh, 
I would I would point out it's interesting the question, you know, beck and call is one of those little phrases. No one knows what beck it means there. So that's something for listeners to follow up on. And you, and you know, I don't know if you know, but you I've always thought it was beck and call, like she's beckoning. Is that not it? I'm not going to say because I think this is something that a lot of people get wrong because is it what you what I didn't think it was beck and call. Hear, I didn't think it was beck hear. and call. I thought it was beck and call. Like, oh, the beck and call. Like, let me see. What it, I'm asking Chad GPT. No, no, which no. I, the, I, you're, I think you're going to find that uh, you're right. But I think that a lot of people, I've had students who wonder what beck is. Beck and call. Oh, Beck referred to a small nod or gesture and call referred to a vocal summons. Together, they signify that someone is so obedient or attentive that they respond immediately <laughs> to even the slightest sign or request. I, I stand by what I said. I am at her beck and call. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, the French novelist, uh, Alain Robrier, who I wish yeah. would come back into, you know, he was, he was married to a dominatrix for years. And was he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was one of, he started off as an agricultural chemist, you know, and then he became this really strange and I think very interesting novelist. And when he died, it was revealed that, yeah, this incredibly uh, longstanding, deeply, you know, passionate sort of, marriage with a a dominatrix i don't know that's cool i don't know but here's the thing that i wanted to get to why i think this is important in a larger sense because it almost never comes up unless you are talking about uh photographic exhibitions like the kind i curated who took the photograph Mm. you know so many if 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 all of of us humans just did disappear and only our artifacts were left, we would have some real difficulty identifying who took the photographs, you know? And when you think about what that means, well, that, we don't have the equivalent of that, I don't think, in terms of text, where we don't know who entirely was behind the words. I think we, I think a great number of our images, our photographic images, uh, we would be anonymous. We wouldn't know necessarily. If you, I mean Ansel Adams, a few, you know, of course, a few famous photographers, absolutely, but not anywhere. There's such a tiny percentage of of just the the ocean of imagery we swim in, and none of that really gets thought of at all. Because we're too busy focused on the apparent subject. But in that sense, photographs are like a strange, is it a one-way mirror or a two-way mirror? You know, Uh, it's very, very peculiar. And that says so much about the nature of of what is the apparent subject. Because Mm -hmm. surely that has been a very uh, selective choice on the part of a particular perspective, an individual. Hmm. I think we can actually catch up just a little bit before we get into the challenges. I think we can get into this week's, technically, new notes. It's become unusual 
to hold a photograph in your hand. It's likely an old Kodak snapshot or a Polaroid, a shot from maybe one of the new instant camera reboots or a special photo for framing. But these are but a tiny percentage of the photos we see today. Most of the photographic-based images we encounter now are completely two-dimensional on screens. That almost goes unnoticed. The notion of small square prints, like cards you could shuffle, almost alternative tarot decks in a way, that's for old shoeboxes and older people. Better get them digitized. The photos or the people? Hmm. That's interesting. That's a nice segue. I think it was good that you jumped to it because it does tie right in. It was perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. I, I keep thinking of this uh, shop that was in Portland, had all these little curios in it. And one of the deals was four photos for $5, this big trunk. And it was a bunch of those little tiny, old timey photographs that I guess had been gathered at estate sales or just collected over the years. But I thought I could have sat at that big trunk and just looked at those photos for it, it, complete mundanity, you know? Yeah. You know, somebody somebody holding a beer, you know, standing in front of, you know, an old Chevy truck or whatever. But it was fascinating to look at because somebody had to take that, you know, somebody had to take that photo and it actually it actually mattered at the time, you know? I love that description because I think you've said something very important about the nature of, of art, possibly at large. But mm -hmm. I love the idea of, of you physically sitting at a trunk and going through what you acknowledge on the one hand are completely mundane images. And yet I could feel just in your description a kind of magical quality almost of like, a, you know, being involved with an oracle or some sort of divination sort of aid, where, where every photograph that you, you look at has some sort of charged significance, meaning that it you can't account for in terms of the subject. Because as you said, it's mundane, but somehow the context, there has been an infusion of magic and kind of continuous surprise. I like that you said that magic. I like that you said magic. And I think that, I think that magic always, always, always comes from intention. And that's why I would say that photographs that you see on Instagram of, you know, influencers is not magic because mm. it's, there's no real focused intent on it the kind of intent that comes from only having one shot at something throwing a free throw at the end of the game requires a different kind of intent and focus and magic than playing a game of horse with your buddies and you're only on h so i think that the <laughs> that the magic that comes from all of this kind of stuff had is directly is directly uh, related to intention. Somebody spent money on the film. They spent money on the camera. They had a limited number of photographs that they could take. And so like, if it's a photograph of something very mundane, you might say, well, this person didn't necessarily have the eye that some more professional photographers, famous photographers might have, but you still feel the magic because it's really focused. The best photographs I've ever taken have been 
what are the best photographs that I've ever taken of my dog, <laughs> of my son, yeah, and and regardless of what I said earlier, of my wife too, because there's something going on even with that digital photography that you can feel coming through the photograph, right? You can see a moment of joy or you just, it doesn't have to be joy or or pain or anything really, but it feels very much like the the energy of the moment was copied and pasted onto that digital photograph, right? So I think that that is what the, what the magic of it is, but you know, the magic community as it is right now is, it has a real problem, which is when you study something called the occult and nothing's occulted anymore, can it still be occult? And perhaps photography is suffering a similar crisis where mm. every, everybody has it and you just take photographs of everything. Sometimes people take pictures of the moon and without a special lens, it just looks like a pin light yeah. in the sky. So yeah. why would why would you do it? Because just because just because you take a photograph of it. So all the things that we've said about the magical, mystical, occult, even powers of photography, I think, are very much related to intention that was necessitated by its scarcity, and now has to be focused upon in order to recreate that same kind of sense. I like that. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's pretty optimistically phrased because I, I, it does strike me as possible to argue that all the, and I, it would really sadden me if this were the case, because I derive a lot of enjoyment and, and to some extent, some income from my photographic efforts. But a lot of people, I think, do feel that there's something already kind of uh, not quite dead but but that it's matured to a point that and and it, we spoke earlier about sort of the ai influenced art trend which i think has kind of died down now i i mean i think a lot of people got really you know turned on by that and started fooling around with it and it was sort of cool it was certainly good for some laughs but the manipulation of of photographic imagery um is potentially endless you know mm -hmm. they can always come up with new you know new programs new apps but it's not endless in terms of its conceptual appeal and its substance and i think that that like a lot of uh, electronic forms of music we're getting too far away from you know the idea of what music really is so there is that problem, but I I think that what the way you put it was was very optimistic that it can be reclaimed and re uh, remagicked, but it takes some serious intent and some also maybe some abandonment of an intent. I think going back to an earlier idea that you had of you know have systems really on the one hand and real methodology and disciplines and then roll the dice. On the mm -hmm. app, you know, mm -hmm. we talked about mm -hmm. that as a kind of oscillation of yep. two very different creative and also just general life strategies. And I've thought about that a lot since that episode. And then that comes up in many different forms, I think. And it's a way of, for me, it's a way of looking at um, some of the artists that I most admire. 
in in different art forms. I think that they may not have formulated that that structure the way uh, that you did so articulately, but I think that's a way to interpret their work. And something in that is going to have to be um, the way that photography goes. But I think that you could say that photography is a fine art is pretty much finished. You know, I really can't. I think that's the, what are you buying? You know, if you if you invest in that, it, it's very hard to have that uh, bespoke singular uh, quality. Um, and that raises the issue, then, is that really the fault of photography? That was only one of the two, you just, when we go back to the history of photography, the paper printing process, the, the, the reproducibility of it. That was not daguerreotype, you know, that mm -hmm. daguerre's uh, frame. That was the other avenue. So there's something there that you, you think, well, is that the fault of, of photography or is that another technological process of printing? Is that the Gutenberg stream come back around behind, you know? Uh, and I don't know. I mean, that's kind of hard to, to say. It, it, it's a blurring of technologies but if you go back to uh george eastman's breakthrough with kodak his image was to have a camera in every house every family would have a camera and i think that's really the way to you know to think about photography on that level and that ties in with what you were saying about your family photo, the family photograph level. Right. And there seems to be a point with every art form where you get to a certain level of egalitarianism. And then in order to preserve the integrity of the art form, it has to kind of stop there because the code, the Kodak era which is the era I grew up in, in the 80s and the 90s, feels different from all the digital photos today. Right. By the way, I will say this. It feels different to me, but funny enough, I'll bet you if I were to ask my mother, who grew up in the 1960s and 70s, she wouldn't see as much of a difference. A lot of people adopt these new technologies, and perhaps they don't... <sighs> they don't have the same level of, you know discernment of what we're really talking about when it comes like to them the photograph is just a documentation of a time that can trigger a memory mm -hmm. so if you can do that all the time that actually means that photographs are better but what you and i are talking about is this kind of living essence that's behind photography with a capital p so i think that uh you know i brought up that idea of how the occult is supposed to be occulted and it's sort of like having a, like the Kodak is like having a, a mainstream Catholicism and leaving, still having the esoterica behind closed doors, right? As opposed to now on the internet, you can download all the, the, the Christian esoterica from, from the web whenever you want. Uh, there does seem to be that, that need to, to gatekeep. People hate that word now, especially in the writing community. They hate the gatekeepers. <laughs> well, the gatekeepers need to be there. Things there, though. I've just, uh, you know, if I had to say, 
with when I'm and I've been thinking a lot about this with the memory and alertness book and how these topics all intersect. Almost before the ideological befuddlement that is seizing people of our time, I think it's a widespread pandemic sort of thing, no matter what the perspective is. Almost before that problem, before the decline in literacy and the degeneration of linguistic appreciation, the thing that scares me the most, I think, is uh, the segment of the population who really don't see any of the mysterious process that you and I have been talking about behind images. They, in fact, would say that they just see the image. Whereas I think you and I would say, absolutely, no, you don't. The more transparent or uh, maybe transparency isn't the right word at all. The more concrete the image is and you don't question any of the context, you don't question any of this process that we've been looking at from so many different perspectives, which is, is a way of looking at the whole notion of perspective. If you think that you're going straight to the subject and you're making an alarming assertion about what the subject is, that it's obvious and clear and objective, then I don't know if it's possible to break that spell. I think that's going to be, that's one of the challenges I'm taking on with some of the practical exercises in the book, which are kind of variations on your imaginative challenge and some of the, the tools and tips that we mentioned. But they're sort of more, uh, well, they're both more open-ended and uh, they take more time, but they're also just blatantly more uh, more demanding in terms of, of work on the part of the reader to, to, to really bring them to life. Because I think that the kind of person that I'm thinking of is someone who is absolutely unaware of the larger conceptual frames around photography and image reproduction that we've been talking about. They have so metabolized that form of perception, which is not physical, psychological first, it's really jumping to the social level because the way we process these images are entirely enculturated and they take, take some time, but we pick up on it very quickly. I'm sure Gus has already, you know, he's had exposure to television and, and you know, all sorts of things. So breaking that spell is, I think, one of my principal goals yeah yeah and i think i think that's also i think that's a great goal and i think that i would really 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 like to talk about this because this gets to the central problem of what you and i face as artists because there are some people who would say food isn't an art it's just food if it if it has protein, carbohydrates, and fat, I'll eat it, and that's fine. No taste. Avengers is a great movie. 
Marvel movies are great movies. Why? Because I wasn't bored for three hours. Mm -hmm. I get bored, but you know what I mean. A book doesn't have anything to do with language. You know how often I hear that now? It's like, no, a book, a book is a story that follows rules and, you know, has characters that you enjoy hanging out with for eight hours. But when I see prose that where I have to read a line twice or they get into that, uh, um, you know, that semantic push and pull that you and I like so much that we pick up on naturally, that kind of rhythm of like hard and soft, that kind of sine wave pattern of writing. Yeah, yeah. When when some people get that and it's not just the fucking information, they're like, oh, I don't like this. This isn't good. Music. If it's a beat, if we've got four on the floor and I can shake my ass to it, it's good. Yeah. But is, you know, hearing someone play steel drums or or let's say, uh, you know, hearing a kind of a strange beat, right? Like a 12 over eight or even a three over four, like a waltz or something. I can't like... I can't shake my ass to this. So is this technically, is this even music? But this is a huge thing, man. This is like something that's really worth talking about, which is how do you, in a non-pretentious way, because Americans are very sensitive to, to being told that their mindless consumption is is what it is, right? And that they might get something out of going a layer deeper into the things that they enjoy. How do you get that across to people? Right. How how do you instill a love of beautiful prose? How do I explain to people why I think, you know, name an author? I'm reading uh, uh, Tim Powers right now, and he's he's good on prose, but he's not a prose stylist. But someone more like Gene Wolfe, right? The Book of the New Sun. Why is that good? Why is a Chris Atkinson? Why is that good? Right? Like what, Chris? What the fuck happens in Reverend America? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Yeah. Like just what's the plot, man? How do you turn it into a 90-minute movie starring Woody Harrelson? Right? It'd have to be Woody Harrelson, right? But um oh, that's a great choice. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. See that? Oh, wow. I love that. Thank you. That's a great idea. I've never had that idea, David. Mm-hmm. And I love Woody and I you know, we've talked about Woody on the show. Um that's interesting. What I'm here for well, okay. One thing that I would say about, because this is a very big topic, but I loved how you very simply and without any rehearsed preparation laid that all out in terms of other art forms of how that repeats in various situations. And you took us through quite a range, you know, from food to music. There was quite a bit of variety in there. Diversity, diversity and inclusion. I like to be diverse and inclusive, man. That's one of my main goals. You you really made a a kind of coherent constellation of the problem. You know, you didn't reduce it. 
who in fact expanded it, but it didn't blow out into some sort of, you know, like gas in a room. It didn't become plasmatic to the point of becoming unrecognizable. I could follow exactly what you were saying. And I think a lot of people could. I think that was beautifully directed to a very, to a lay audience, so to speak. And that if you were running, uh, you know, just a kind of informal workshop, people could start chipping in on that and adding to that. And you could build this conceptual model of what is being talked about, because it's a pretty rich subject. I mean, it started with the perception, the immediate physical perception of a photograph. And then it began to beautifully network out into a whole aesthetic principle of perception and evaluation and value judgments. Mm -hmm. Well, I think once that that could be, you could get that kind of mosaic up into visual format, you know, have that done kind of dimensionally like a community center art project and people could walk around it, you know, sort of as if it were a hologram and maybe a hologram is what form it would take. One thing happens that's really important is something that seems to be too complex to talk about actually starts revealing some extremely simple principles that connect it. And once people, if they went through that process, so they could just listen to say your, your, your rap from food to music, you know, that was just really nice and simple. If each person, say, out of, you know, a 10-person workshop were then required to contribute that same number of examples, I think you'd, you'd start to get to a point where the field is expansive, but it's not endless. Mm -hmm. It's not endless. This is not, it's a mysterious topic, but it is, it's a finite one. And I think once that realization kicked in, it becomes possible to, well, the one way I would think of it is if you imagine that we've created this hologram in a kind of art gallery setting, but we've all been sort of part of it. So we can walk around and it's difficult to describe the shape because it's peculiar, but it does have a shape we could then start asking, well, maybe I want to see something that is more pleasant as a macro shape. Maybe we want some, some more structure. Maybe we want, uh, maybe we want less. Maybe we want to, maybe it was, you know, it might've been a very cubist kind of thing. It was just kind of a little bit soft and squishy. Now we want to make it really organic or maybe we do want more order. But I think we get people thinking about how perception at the apparently almost pre-conscious level is in fact influenced by language frames, social frames, and frames that people may not really want to have if they could be given a choice. And we start making more beautiful composite sculptures for our public spaces so to speak and we do that because we've changed the shape of our interior private spaces you know Ooh, yeah yeah 
let's put a let's put a pin in that big time because I would love to do a whole series on taste. Okay. On, on what what taste actually means. I think we can get you know, it might take four or five episodes, but I think, I think we can develop a really cool series we can point people to whenever the question of, because this is a, you know, common question that people love to argue about on the internet. Is something hard or isn't it? Are yeah. you being elitist if you have some kind of standards for the art that you like? I don't, you're looking at, I don't look like, I don't look very elite right now and my bank account <laughs> would show you just how not elite i really am uh so i think we could do something really really cool with that and uh yeah yeah so i just i, I, I think agree i agree we have a I bit more photography start stuff next time i really like okay cool yeah. yeah 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 we can start next time do you want to hear about my I, i'm i'm ready for my summer horror movie i have a lot of potential titles You'll okay, lay which, on which, which ones you like best. So there's the classic. I got a pair of snips here that I'm, I'm Ooh. it's it's thematic. Get it? I get um, it. I, I I'm I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> so um big one word title, right? Miss Andrew. Don't love it, but it's there. It's it's hot. People get what it means. Uh pulpy kitschy 1950s revenge of the women i don't love that one either uh long time too long i was thinking maybe seldom make history or the full well-behaved women seldom make history uh the future is female or get this one this one's good my body's my choice oh that's that's pretty cool right um, and then finally, and this will tie in because I'm going to tell you a little bit about what, what this is about, round table. So my conception for when this pandemic hits is we are on the set of a talk show. Maybe it's, you know, we can update it. Maybe it's a podcast for the, for the, I've seen some of these podcasts now where guys will uh, interview like hot girls about topics and they'll say like i don't need men for anything and then the guys will say well yes you do because all the roads you drive on the phones that you're like everything that you have is built by men and you know they'll, they'll go back it's like these kind of gotcha viral videos or whatever so maybe it's that <laughs> but, but round table is basically we have we have a show that is hosted by your stereotypical liberal cuck male right he's got the thick black glasses he's got the he, he's uh probably he's one of those pear-shaped fellows you know like just uh-huh. kind of out of shape and the guests on the show are an andrew tate-esque figure a conservative OBGYN female okay. and a and a trans woman and when this chaos all kicks off, they have to band together to try to survive against, against women, right? And the tagline for the movie is, it's that time of the month. 
Oh, damn. I look, I think that was I love the major characters. I loved how you zoomed in on them. And I love the the you know the raison d'etre there of, of a kind of talk show. I, I think Roundtable is a great uh and you know suggestion of nights the roundtable, but mm-hmm. it, it makes you wonder what's going on. And with a really intense tagline like that, I think that you could go for just the quiet title. Apparently mm, cool. quiet. Yeah, yeah. They're they're there to discuss. I'm seeing my note here. I should have added that the round table itself is based on a kind of uh like Matt Walsh-esque documentary, like What is a Woman or something like that. So the the movie could actually start just in the studio with a kind almost like a David Mamet play of these three characters going back for the first 15 minutes of it. It's this really snappy dialogue back and forth where they're arguing about, uh, you know, trans issues, uh, Me Too, like just everything in there. And then at some point in there, the, the conversation is getting heated, 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 heated. And as it goes on, we're cutting back to the women in the audience because the entire audience is female, right? And they're starting to sweat. And then you see a trickle of blood go down one woman's eye. And oh. then finally at the crescendo a woman just just takes out i don't know maybe a pair of scissors or snips or something i don't know why she'd have snips but and just plunges it into the neck of the man sitting next to her and like blood starts geysering out and it's this huge you know 10 minute zombie massacre scene where they're like the rage zombies from 28 days later so they can move fast but they've completely and they don't kill each other they don't kill other it's just they're just after the men Right. And of course, the OBGYN is also one of them. So maybe she bites into the trans woman or or something like that. But they all kind of the, this uh, male liberal host, the Andrew Tate guy, perhaps a wounded trans woman. They ha- they're trying to get out of this building and out back into society and kind of survive. And they're all sort of uh, bantering back and forth the whole time. Right. And we can slip fun things in with every new set piece, basically. I love it when you go gore and goop. You've got a great feel for this. You know, if I had millions and millions of dollars, I would love to see you direct a real splatter film because you've got a gift for for listeners who, one of my favorite, favorite uh, of David's responses to an imaginative challenge was uh, over a, uh, the Christmas period, and I'd given him the Terminator series uh, premise, but in a, in the context of the three wise men, and one of the three wise men is a, is a sort of Terminator figure, and David came back with an absolute rampage, mayhem in the manger response. <laughs> it was just so wonderful. But I I just now saw exactly what the round table, you know, the, this absolute just jetting of blood and a wonderful sort of uh, gore, uh, which is kind of what I think that, you know, if I was asked, like, what would a kid growing up in Oklahoma who wanted to be in a band and was a skater and was kind of degenerate, you know, what, what else would he would have been you know, into? I, I would have said, oh, maybe splatter horror, you know, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like this. Totally. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my favorites were the Japanese ones, like uh, Ichi the Killer was a good one for me. A lot of the samurai movies, the Zato Ichi and Lone Wolf and Cub, Lady Snowblood, that kind of stuff. Really I love it blood. when you talk like that. I think it's just <laughs> like a beautiful sort of, I think you could do just a kind of nice rap about sort of the, well, that's, I guess, kind of in a sense what, what you know, the Agitator podcast is sort of mm-hmm. is about doing mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. paying that, those fetishes tribute in a yep. way. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, do you have a tool and a tip for us today? I do. And I, you know, again, Sometimes, and I really hope these are always uh, simple in the sense that they're achievable and and conceptually easy to grasp, but it's always in the doing, you know, it's in the applying uh, the principle. But the the idea came across actually when I was watching uh, a TV show that I really admire from 2006. It came back on Amazon Prime, The Lost Room. Have we ever talked about it? It's a really great six-part series. Uh, they obviously, the, the the team behind it, you know, had hopes of it doing sort of uh, longer-term business, but they were, they wound things up really neatly. It um, It's a supernatural uh themed show it was actually on the sci-fi channel originally has a very strong cast of of good character actors uh and i think the lead guy was in six feet under but uh juliana margulis is in it it's a good cast the principle is that there was a motel room in gallup new mexico so old route 66 country where something mysterious happened in 1961 and a room vanished and exists only interdimensionally now and there's religious facts factions who are trying to get a hold of the objects that were in the room it's it's a series the series is divided into six chapters the key the clock the comb the box the eye and the occupant cool yeah, it really is. And and the key that's referred to is is what falls into the hands of the protagonist. And it appears to be one of the most valuable objects because it it allows you entry into uh room 10, this the lost room. Uh but through it, if you envision a door clearly in your mind, you can enter any door in the world, providing it has a, a, a tumbler lock. So that clicked, so to speak, in my mind with uh, an idea that I have recommended to my students. I do use uh, in my classes, and I mentioned um, in the textbook. But I really revisited it. Is is do some riddle work? You know, riddles are good, but we tend to when you say that to people, they they instantly tend to sort of well, they'll Google on a series of riddles and try to work on them. You know, solving the puzzle. And I said, no, 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 no. Think about creating riddles. Think about being a riddle author and what that means, because there's an interesting process to that, because, of course, you're creating the problem, but you also do need to sort of have the solution. So it's that one way or two way mirror sort of question. And I think that with our discussions on photography, that's what led me in this direction. But 
I came up with a really simple one. And I think this is, is you know, the, the important point is just to try to work on this as a literary form, as a thought form. I said, when is a key not a key? When there's no lock. Mm. You know, if you go to some of these antique stores or secondhand stores or estate sales, you know, you find a bunch of keys. I mean, what is a key if you don't have a lock? Well, it's a kind of sculptural item. I have a beautiful collection of skeleton keys. I mean, they look wonderful, but they're almost symbolic. They've almost lost their, they're on that fine, weird kind of lost room, supernatural borderland between something that's extremely physical and obviously made, and yet it's almost too symbolic. It's sinking into that ghostly world of form, you know, quite haunting. Mm -hmm. So, but when is a key not a key when there's no lock? Give riddle making a try. We've talked about, you know, I we I think there's a lot to be said for doing aphorism work. I really love that literary form, but riddles are important too. And rather than just Google on one and just seeing what you know levels of difficulty are, riddles for kids, riddles for adults. Now make your own, make your mm-hmm. own. And mm-hmm. just in stumbling with that format, I think it's a terrific discipline for writers. Because you don't have to have it, you know, it doesn't have to burn. But just going through that thought process is interesting from a storytelling and predicament point of view. You know, Walter Mosley talks about predicaments rather than, I like that word. Um, And my tip is kind of connected. It's very much, uh, well, it's aimed at writers. I was thinking about my music making experiences of light, and I I got into some real experimental things of some DIY synths and and acoustical instruments, real self-made stuff, and the music that that sort of develops out of it is, is very experimental. I'm struggling for any sort of structure. It's hard to tune instruments that have just been invented. To what extent is that even meaningful? But I found that when I was working on the composition or the creation of that music, it was an intense experience. And my immediate instinct coming out of it was to listen to some really super pop music. Mm -hmm. Perhaps of an earlier era. Okay, no question. But real song crafts, which I particularly like the the uh, American top forty AM radio period. You know, like nineteen, you know, pre nineteen nineties. You know, when there really was some very very uh, agreed upon frameworks. Things hadn't completely fragmented. And I thought, okay, well, so that's kind of an interesting thing. I've got this. Uh, I'm creating this really weird experimental music on the one front. And then I have this deep need for something super commercial and super structured. And I thought, okay, that's an interesting oscillation. What would that mean from a writing point of view? And, and what would that mean if you incorporate our idea of inversion? And um, I have kind of a, a friend who, who was asking about this and, and, She's really trying to write something super commercial because she feels like she needs some some money and she does, but she's not really a super commercial 
as in romance, uh, say, or horror or whatever genre reader. So I said, well, what about looking back to the avant-garde works from the past for a clue? If, if an avant-garde writer needs to get a hold of some more commercial, super genre stuff, if you invert that, how does that work? And I think there's a lot in that because, I mean, take something like Impressions of Africa by Raymond Roussel, which is almost incomprehensibly avant-garde. How would a super commercial person deal with that book? I don't know if you, but it's a, it's, he's one of my favorite strange writers. Well, I think there's a tremendous amount to be done with yeah. it. You, yeah. You've got a shipwreck cast in an exotic location, craziness. You turn that into a murder mystery. You turn it into a sex and romance. There's all sorts. Of, and that is where a lot of, um, I think, you know, where things can go just to ratchet up a little bit from commercial pap. Look at some of the avant-garde things that just popularize them, you know? Simple. That's so cool. That is so cool. Yeah, that resonates with me big time. I talk a lot on Agitator about how a part of writing is in fact an act of translation. And I really do like this idea of translating an avant-garde piece of literature into something quote-unquote commercial and I think you're on to something because I I, some of my favorite television shows really seem to do that where Rios and I are almost done watching the three seasons of the show Hannibal based Mm -hmm. on Thomas Harris's uh, Hannibal Lecter series and it's very it's shockingly visually stunning and a little avant-garde right it's it's got some pretty surprisingly surreal elements to a show that aired on nbc right and and there's just that sweet spot when people with artistic sensibilities don't they they're it's not that they're trying to do something uh, uh commercial and and thereby making their their work bloodless, one of our favorite words on on Lost Explorers. But in fact, kind of go, like what if you're, <laughs> what if you were tasked with making a show for NBC, and your inspiration was sallow, right, or something like that, a crazy like a criterion collection or even deeper cut and what if it was like i'm going to adapt that and include all of the elements of it that i love but with an eye towards you know bringing people into the fold right making a piece of art that is an introduction to other more difficult pieces of art that's a really cool idea for me. It might not be exactly what you were saying, but no, no, I think that was gorgeously phrased. And I think there are some examples of I mean, Salvador Dolly comes to mind as someone who managed to pull mm. off that magician feat. I think there's an interesting connection or resonance of some kind with David Lynch, 
Um, I, but I think this there is more room for some kind of uh, monstrous but beautiful intermingling, you know, mating of high commercialism and strange avant-garde. And I think that if if the mutations of those could really, really be interesting, you know, and it's a good starting point as, as a general sort of methodology premise for writers and, and creative people who are a little bit sort of, I don't know, maybe stuck is, is this kind of uh, acquaintance front of mine was and and she really sort of has, has gotten on to that because it pings off in different directions you know you get some energy in the box and some things bounding around and that's really uh the essence of a tip i think is just to get some thoughts started but i love how you i think really help listeners get get a, across that because that's exactly what i was thinking of totally awesome have you been dreaming I have, I have, I, there have been fragments of things. Uh, last time I have, had a strange sort of moment of seeing uh, Matt Rivert, who is someone we both know. I, I mm-hmm. knew Matt personally in Australia, um, but he's a writer, art director, designer, musician, and kind of lost touch with him. But the the focus is on pretty much not a storyline, but just an, just imagery, imagery that is so powerful. And I think it's a good way to round off this segment where we've been talking again about the, the weird power of a hypnotic, uh, potentially very disturbing power of photography. This is just pure pure imagery but i was there in absolutely total total immersion i don't know why i was too fascinated by what was going on to have any questions about that or for that memory to survive the waking but we are talking northern forest not forest tundra we're talking about like kind of where the yukon starts to get uh very very arctic and just unnerving but there are signs of former human habitation bare electric transformer towers like giant skeletons so the wires are gone but the towers remain tundra northern latitude tundra cold yes blue tinged snow it's almost the slight colorations to that shift in the light because the angles of the sun are different it makes the snow seem much colder in a weird way it's very very unnerving and approaching me in disturbing quantity are wolves wolves very good sized wolves going about 220 pounds each very good sized wolves big boys yeah disturbing 
But the thing that is just so terrifying and beautiful is that they are all wearing somehow these just amazingly beautiful but also frightening Venetian carnival mask and hoods that are just tailored for each of them. They're all different, but they have those kinds of satiny colors. And the combination of the wolves in number and the size of them, the sheer bulk, but the, this, these headgear apparatus mask hood things is just so beautiful and so absolutely terrifying, but I can't move. I just am completely frozen, so to speak, in this landscape. Two things come to mind. The first one is when you were describing that landscape, I had this image of a, uh, I can only describe it as a brutalist igloo. Ooh. Uh, what yeah. a good title. I yeah. love that. Yeah. A brutalist igloo. And then the wolves with their Venetian masks. There was a book by Brian Jacques in his very popular 20 book Red Wall series, which was a kind of medieval fantasy, but with animals. So mice, rats, stoats, foxes, uh, watership down style. But for a sixth grader reading these books, some pretty fucked up shit happened in those books. And the third novel is called Marl Fox. And a minor henchman character from the first novel, Redwall. Uh, you think they die. They, they get disfigured in some way, but they come back. And the Marl Fox of the title of the bad guy is just brutal. It just kills people left and right. You're reading this in sixth grade you're like oh my god i didn't know life could be so brutal and he wears one of these types of masks that you're oh. talking about fox not a wolf yeah uh well look i i think that's that's amazing that's amazing i mean that's that's enough of a synchronicity or connection for me i had mm -hmm. no idea i think that's mm -hmm. very interesting mm -hmm. wow but uh all right, it's getting late over here, so I better call it for this okay. evening, but I think okay. this has been a very productive episode. Indeed. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next time. All right.